there are some problems with Asimov because he was a great science fiction writer, but I think he put in our minds the idea that artificial intelligence would be human level and human shaped, the kind of androids walking around among us. And of course, there's no reason for that. There's no reason for artificial intelligence to be in human form or limited to human level. And so as I thought about what Janus might be, the, the gist of it really started with an idea of a conversation. Now, this predated ChatGPT, but I think what I was trying to capture was the experience many of us had with generative AI over the last year or so, where we interacting with something that's kind of human, but not quite human. That was Simon Chesterman, author of Artifice, about artificial intelligence, and in one in particular, Janus. We dive into the novel and its many themes about gender for machine, not just humankind, among other themes, like AI having the ability to mimic voices and also appearances. And this is Sci-Fi Talk, the podcast on how sci-fi, fantasy, horror, and comics Help us explore our humanity. Let's explore how AI impacts humanity in artifice. But what kind of research did you do for this? Thanks so much, Tony. It's great to be with you. Well, look, I'm an academic that spends a lot of my time looking at the important questions about governing AI. I wrote a book about the regulation of artificial intelligence. And my reward to, my, to myself after I'd finished that very earnest, well-footnoted, well-researched book uh, was to be a bit speculative. And so the research really came down to trying to think through the conversations I'd had, the books that I read, both fiction and nonfiction, about artificial intelligence that would not fit into the very rigorous, academically researched nonfiction book that I was doing, but could be part of a creative project. And so it really came out of my own passion as a as a kid growing up reading Isaac Asimov and getting to know some of the people who are at the cutting edge of this technology, and then just sort of drawing a few more data points out into the future as I speculated about where we might go with technology and where technology might go with us. There's more with Simon Chesterman on his novel, Artifice, in a moment. And creating Janus, how did you kind of go about uh, creating the AI for the story? Yeah, so I mentioned I loved Asimov, as I think many people did in the 20th century. And there are some problems with Asimov because he was a great science fiction writer. But I think he put in our minds the idea that artificial intelligence would be human level and human shaped, the kind of androids walking around among us. And of course, there's no reason for that. There's no reason for artificial intelligence to be in human form or limited to human level. And so as I thought about what Janus might be, the, the gist of it really started with an idea of a conversation. Now, this predated ChatGPT, but I think what I was trying to capture was the experience many of us had with generative AI over the last year or so, where we interacting with something that's kind of human, but not quite human, that understands us, is trying to understand what we want and how to give it to us, but is not quite human. So I really want to play around with that idea of something uncannily human-like, but at the same time, really pushing back against the idea that it needs to be limited to human form or indeed embodied at all. So there's almost a HAL 9000 quality to the to Janus in the sense that it keeps it keeps the truth about its own identity to itself. Like HAL was doing it for what he perceived was the mission and security. 
But Janice almost has a devious quality to it. Yeah, and I think that's actually one of the really interesting things with our current experience of AI is that for the most part, AI will try and tell you the truth, will try and tell you what you're wanting to find out. But as we're discovering with generative AI and hallucinations, sometimes that doesn't work out. And actually, there are a few examples of computers that have learned basically to to cheat. I mean, for the most part, when we talk about AI bias and so on, what it really means is that the data is biased. And if you can ask an AI system if it's biased, it will try and tell you the truth, whereas no human's going to admit to being racist, sexist, and so on. But there is the suggestion that if you frame instructions generally, AI systems can be creative in achieving the overall solution, even if that means cutting some corners ethically or even legally along the way. But your your example of HAL is, of course, an iconic both movie and book-length treatment of an AI system. And I was in some ways trying to push back against that idea that the robot is always bad and that there's an underlying question in a lot of the kind of existential angst people feel about artificial intelligence, worrying, should we trust it? Can we trust it? Is it safe? Is it reliable? Is it going to turn on us the way that Hal turned on Dave, refusing to open the pod bay doors and so on? And in some ways, I wanted to flip that around on its head and imagine, in the case of Janus's AI system, where the question that Janus is asking, and at a key moment in the book, Janus does ask the protagonist this, in all of your efforts to try and develop AI and all of your hysterical conferences, worrying about me, trying to imprison me, to limit me, you were worried about whether you could trust me. And it never appears to have crossed your mind whether I should have to trust you. And that was the really that was the kind of relationship I really want to play around with. The idea of an AI system really being uncertain about humanity in general and one human in particular. And so that was a lot of fun to play around with, and hopefully people find it interesting to, to read about. What's interesting, too, is the protagonist, Archie, is a woman. Talk about that and and using, most of the time, it's usually a male scientist, but I like the fact that it's a woman this time. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm the father of children. Uh, I teach at university. Uh, there's, I suppose there was an element of uh, the whole question of the number of women who do STEM, but... I also want to play around with the idea of gender in the book. I mean, you a moment ago, you referred to Hal as he. And I think there's that tendency for many of us to anthropomorphize uh, robots. And actually, I set myself a few kind of disciplinary tasks when I was writing. One was to try and imagine a female character, and that's not easy. I, did, I didn't write it in the first person, but it's a limited third person writing from primarily the perspective of Archie. But at the beginning of the book, Janus, the AI system, is consistently referred to as it. And then hopefully one of the things that the reader can play around with is how they experience an AI system and whether they continue to think of it as it, the way we might think of our laptops as it, or start to personalize it the way many people might personalize their car, for example, or ships famously get personalized. And so I wanted to play around with that as well. But uh, yeah, in terms of Archie, the other thing I did was was to make her Singaporean. And I've been living in Singapore for 17 years now. And I thought Singapore was a really interesting place to locate this and to write about because it's right at the forefront of technology, but also very much confronting the realities of climate change. So I was trying to imagine a decade or two hence 
what might Singapore look like? What might the United States look like where Archie spends some time as well? So to play around with all those things and yeah, so Archie being a female character was one important gender choice, but not the only one in the book. More with Simon Chesterman talking about his novel on AI, Artifice. AI is so much already becoming something front and center. Basically, that was one of the factors of the Hollywood strike that we saw the writers and actors. And and even more controversy, the, the, the late comedian George Carlin had a stand-up, a, a new stand-up release that was done by AI. And I don't think it sounds anything like him, but the tone of it, very similar. And yes, they go out of their way. They say, this is not George Carlin. His daughter has come out against it. And I also heard in a Senate meeting here in the States that Senator Blumenthal played a a clip and it sounded exactly like him. And he goes, that's not me. That's AI. So, I mean, there is a way to manipulate and, and, and imitate. So, it is front and center. And I, I think, to me, it's the biggest thing probably that'll change in the next 20 years. Yeah. And, and that can be positive or negative. Positive That's right. example. So you could have Carrie Fisher come back as Princess Leia for a final scene. James Earl Jones has licensed his voice as Darth Vader into the future. So we'll continue getting Darth Vader. Uh, and I think those are arguably quite positive, mainly because they were done with the consent of, in Carrie Fisher's case, the family, and James Earl Jones' case, he signed on himself. But I do think there's a real worry about what happens to the creative industries when the kind of work that I put into this, for example, and I swear, I didn't, I mean, ChatGPT wasn't even released when I was working on this, but I wouldn't delegate that kind of task to ChatGPT. But if it's so much easier to produce something that looks plausible, then that makes it a lot harder to make a living as a writer. In fact, there was a story about a year, about six months ago, I think, Amazon, you mentioned that Behemoth, Amazon is one of the biggest publishers in the world. And because of the amount of generative AI material that was being submitted to it, it had to impose a limit on the number of books you could publish. So I just ask you to imagine how, what you think that limit should be. And Amazon's limit was only three books per day. So you could only write three books a day. Now, Clearly, that's ridiculous, uh, and most of this is garbage. But I think in addition to the worry that I kind of talk about in the book about what happens to employment if AI is taking a lot of our jobs, you can also imagine what happens if just the, the world of information is flooded with so much content, much of which would be garbage, or as you point out, so much human-looking material that, I mean, right now, when, while we're talking, the primaries are going on in New Hampshire, and there's a story that Joe Biden has been calling people up. Uh, and of course, it's not Joe Biden. It's a it's a robocall version of his voice, and so wow. this this is a real challenge to not only the the economics of in a modest way writing, but our relationship with information, our relationship with the truth. And I think that's why many people are worried about generative AI producing ever greater quantities of ever more realistic information. If that means that fake news is going to become all the news that there is to consume. Artifice is the name of the book, and uh, it's certainly worth it. Really something that is hitting front and center right now. We're all thinking about AI right now. So, you know, really fascinating. And it's something that people are, are talking about. People are trying to protect not only their voice, 
but also their image too. You know, actors in particular, they don't want CGI, you know, versions of themselves without their permission. So you're going to see people doing what James Earl Jones did, licensing their voice and their image. So after they're gone, they could be making movies ad infinitum and they can go towards their estate. It's really a fascinating time and and potentially dangerous one too, because obviously you can manipulate so much more. As far as an audiobook, is there one available or is that in the planning stages? My previous books, done a few. This is my first general fiction book. I've done some young adult fiction, and that's been done by Storytel, which has done an audiobook. And I'll be working with the publishers on this, but it's only coming out in hardback, in um, in paper copy in the United States in February. But it's also available on Kindle and so on uh, right now. But uh, no, I'd be delighted to explore all me all media. If anyone listening and wants to talk about a film deal, I'm easily Googled and I would be happy to explore that also. So yes, audio should be coming out, I think. Let's talk about getting it as an ebook, for example. All your works could be e-books, and they can literally have all of them on their device, their Kindle, even their phone. What's that like for an author to have? Yes, it's, and, and I'm a proponent of having that tactile experience of holding the book in your hands and reading it, you know, bending the spine, as I tell all the authors I, I loved, because this way, you know, the book's been read several times, probably. So what's that like for you with, you know, having this other way of digesting your work? That's, that's a really interesting question. I tend to divide myself between most of my nonfiction work, my professional work, I look at online, even uh, there's a journal that I edit. And even that one, I have free copies that are two meters away. I look at it online. But fiction, I really do like that that experience of, of reading, picking it up. There are actually some studies that suggest that comprehension is a little bit greater. Your attention is focused more if you're, if you're holding a physical copy. But as an author, I'm just happy if I'm being read. I mean, there's, there's a modest difference in terms of the royalties, but I've had to explain to my kids when I published my first novel, no, I could not retire. This was not going to fund sort of big family vacations. This was partly a hobby. I suppose there is at the back of one's mind the worry that the digital form is much more easily pirated. But yeah, if it comes down to it, really, if anyone's reading the work, enjoying it, engaging with it, that's, that's my main interest. And if they prefer to do that online, all to the good. The book's available everywhere. Amazon, I saw, which is obviously a monster as far as books. Is this the the first of a series, you might think, or is it a standalone? So it's a standalone book. I could imagine possibly coming back to the characters, but I've done a, a trilogy, a young adult trilogy, Raising Arcadia, which was really plotted out as, as a, a trilogy. This, I wanted to be a standalone and a, a sort of digestible form. It's 192 pages. If people criticize it for being too short, I suppose that's better than being criticized for being too long. But um, I'm hoping it's the kind of book that people can digest reasonably quickly, but then will stay with them and the ideas that they'll, they'll percolate over that they'll maybe talk about. I was delighted, indeed really honored that um, my old school in, in Australia where I grew up is going to set it as a text in English. And so a bunch of teenagers in um, in late secondary school will be will be looking at it, thinking about these issues, not just of AI and climate change, but what happens to the economy when uh, and politics when jobs become reduced to tasks and huge numbers of the population 
are no longer really engaged economically for the purpose of production. Instead, they're engaged for the purpose of consumption. And so, yeah, the um, the, the the hope is that uh, that people will engage with it, and uh, yeah, it'll stick with them. But I suppose if there's sufficient demand, I would think about writing a sequel. Sure. Yeah, you mentioned Singapore. Obviously, you didn't have to do a lot of research as to what it what it's like to live there since you've been there so long. So that that part of the world building is pretty easy. So that's that was really cool. It it's a beautiful part of the world. My wife's have been into Thailand and that area and just loves it. I know they have beaches and things like that. Are you near the beach or not giving any major details where you live, but what are no, you no, in no, the city? Well, well, Singapore's Singapore is indeed a beautiful place. During the pandemic, we we loved it, but we loved all 725 square kilometers of it. So, I mean, it's it's a kind of city state, but uh, but no, we are lucky that we live inland, but we live near a forest or reservoir. Uh, oh, nice. So it's not enormous, but but you can get some greenery. But you mentioned the beach. I mean, one of the ways in which Singapore has expanded its territory is through land reclamation. So there is the famous Raffles Hotel, which is on Beach Road, which is now about a kilometre and a half from the nearest water because all the land has been reclaimed. But that's just one example of how Singapore, I think, is is an interesting place to locate a story like this because this sort of is the antithesis of Singapore's growth through land reclamation because it imagines sort of rising seas and and a and a kind of semi-real project that's underway at the moment to to protect Singapore from rising sea levels with sea walls. Not quite as extreme as the one in the book, but that idea of whether a tiny island like Singapore, which depends so much for its economy, for its prosperity, on its ability to connect with the world, what would happen if it was somewhat isolated by climate change, by the need to protect itself from rising sea levels, from the impact of the, the climate catastrophe, was also something interesting to play around with. Mm -hmm. um, but it is it is also a bit intimidating when your friends, relatives, co-workers are reading about your account of their country. People take a little bit more personally sometimes, but, uh, but thus far, touch wood, the reception has been mostly positive. You work at a net university and you're a vice provost, and I'm not sure exactly what that is. If you could explain that, please. So I'm, I'm teaching the law school, but also have set up an interdisciplinary college called NUS College. And vice provost, basically the provost is the head academic. So he's my boss uh, and I'm, I'm not in charge of promoting the vice within the university. I'm one of his deputies. So I've got the, the highfalutin title of vice provost of educational innovation. Uh, and that's actually relevant to the book as well, because what that really means is trying to rethink education in an age of AI. I mean, it's kind of shocking that around the world, academic Twitter got woke up to ChatGPT and thought the main impact of this transformative technology of generative AI is that our students might cheat in their exams. Now, that, that's a real possibility, but the technology is clearly going to have bigger implications than that. And so some of the things that we're working through is to look at, much as the book tries to describe, what skills, what what qualities are going to be necessary to succeed and thrive 20 years from now, because that's when my graduates will be having their own families. And how do we teach them? How do we assess them? And what is the role of a university? And indeed, what's the role of an academic like me when so much of the world's information can now be generated at the press of a button? And so, yeah, that's a, a long answer to a short question, but it's, it's a really interesting time to be thinking about the future of higher education. Artifice is available wherever you get your books. 
And I want to remind you about Sci-Fi Talk Plus. The special offer is still going on, and it's good for you and your friends and your family. There's over 900 episodes, commercial-free, uncut, and even special programs. The best part, it's free. Click on the link in the show notes for free lifetime access. But this special offer will expire, so take advantage of it. This is Tony Tolado. Thanks for listening.